Welcome to the True Spirituality with Ange podcast. I'm here to bring you a version of spirituality that will uplift you, inspire you, and make you feel good. Your belief system does not matter. Everyone is welcome. And along the way, I hope I will help you to build your own spiritual blueprint that will make you feel 100% good about yourself. This is what I have done for myself, thanks to my intuition. So come along for the ride and let's light up the world. You don't need to be religious or even to believe in God. This is an inclusive and diverse space. Let's do this. I'm uh, very excited to have today Mark Dix. He is an online piano coach, the business owner of That Piano Guy, hashtag, and also a musician. He has two bands, and if I don't pronounce it correctly, Mark, step in. Wintex Phyllis and Arth. Winter like, Phyllis. Winter, Winter, sorry. Yes, sorry, Winter and Arth. Yeah. I'm very excited to have you on the show, Mark, because you. I think you call yourself an atheist. Yeah, an atheist. Yeah, oh. it's it's a yeah, it's a um, it's a it's a term that I've kind of grown grown increasingly comfortable with. <laughs> okay, and and so having an atheist on a spiritual podcast for me is very exciting because I think it brings interesting conversation. I love sure. keeping an open mind. I love I love um, you know ha having people who have maybe different a different way of looking at things, um, and I think it enriches everyone's life so the first question i'd like to ask you is what religious background did you grow up in uh so my almost my entire family but let's go for about 90 percent of my entire family are, are a christian background um and you know heavily practicing christians so not, not sort of lapsed christians as you sometimes hear the term um so um my mother's side came from the Royal Church of Scotland as uh, so a quite a traditional church background uh, and my dad's side um, quite a um, a traditional church background as well but as as the years went on both my families ended up in quite an evangelical background so um, you know sometimes the, uh, the pe people will use the the slang expression happy clappers um, quite a sort of modern Christianity and uh, not very traditional at all um, but uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the kind of environment I I grew up in. My, my uh, dad's uh, grandfather was a preacher. Um, my my dad's uh, dad and um, uncle both were preachers um, and would speak in church sometimes. So, so yeah, that I come from quite a sort of a family that's very involved in in Christianity. And. Um how do you explain if you had to explain that yeah. you from this background you decided to become an atheist so it's interesting you call it decided to become an atheist so i genuinely literally on the la in the last few weeks have started calling myself an atheist even okay. even th even though i would now reflecting back say that I've been one for 30 years um, but I've never really just sort of expressed it in that way I just would say I wasn't religious or um, I wasn't spiritual um, if anyone asked me so I've kind of in some ways how, how do I explain arriving at this point I don't really know I think I'm a very practical person in yep. that like I need I, I find, for example, I find visualization of any kind nigh on impossible. So I, I don't have a visual brain at all. So when people say, can you imagine something or can you picture this? I don't really understand what they're talking about. So I think that sort of taps into this notion that if I can't see it, it's just not there. If it's not, if it's not in front of me, it doesn't exist. Um, so, and I'm quite interested in a sort of, as I've got older, I'm quite interested in a sort of, um, I have no knowledge or background in psychology, but the sort of, how pe I'm quite interested in how people interpret 
how different people in, will interpret the same thing in different ways. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of sort of, because I was, you know, brought up in a very Christian environment and, you know, I did a religious studies GCSE, for example, where we, we did quite a lot of study of, of Islam, for example, although I was clearly no expert, but I, had, I learned a little bit about it. Um, I started to sort of feel like there was a great deal of overlap between the sort of prominent religions and that perhaps this was just, um, you know, different people in different parts of the world explaining the same things in different ways or coming to conclusions that were different, even though they were feeling a very similar thing. And then um, about 10 years ago, I was doing a, a PhD, which is in heavy metal music, which is a great conversation starter, but then no one really, <laughs> knows, how to, no one really knows how to respond other than to laugh. Um, uh, part of that was um, part of my PhD, which was all about national identity in, in heavy metal music. So how people represent where they're from. Yeah. Um, I was kind of uh, spending a lot of time around old texts like Anglo-Saxon poetry and and Norse Norse mythology and Icelandic sagas and things things like this. So um, you know, old myths and old texts. I was struck a lot by how, say, the Vikings, for example, were using all of these sort of quite illustrative, decorative explanations for things they didn't understand and things. And how, um, for example, um, the Vikings would call um, the sea the whale road because it was the, the way that the whales traveled. And in in England, in Anglo-Saxon, uh, the Anglo-Saxon period, it became that the English would call it the, the sail road because it was the sea was the road that the sails traveled on. And so in that very simple example, we have two sort of cultures who are using similar ideas, but coming to different conclusions to explain something they didn't really understand. This sea was sort of traveling and, and transporting things around. And these kind of things happen a lot in, in their sort of myth, myth, mythologies. So I just sort of came to the conclusion that um, humanity was sort of trying to explain things that it didn't understand and was coming to all of these different ways of to explaining it. And man had probably just, just sort of had invented all these different religions, all these different sort of spiritual interpretations to explain things that it didn't understand. And that's great. And I have full respect for that because I've, I've grown up in a religious environment. And I don't disrespect religion because I've seen extraordinarily powerful examples in my life in very difficult circumstances of what religion can do for people in terms of the comfort it can provide people in, in horrible situations. I just don't personally buy that that's the, the explanation is there is mm. a Christian God or there is a, an Islam God or I, I just don't buy it. So I'm just not convinced. And part of me kind of wishes that I was because it kind of looks fun <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to look like you belong, like that kind of human sense of belonging. You want to feel like you belong to a greater thing. You want to feel like you're part of a community or part of we all come together and we do X. You know, whether that's a sporting event or a musical event or a religion, they all in some ways fulfill a certain overlap of role for somebody. I just don't think that God is the explanation. So I, that's kind of my route that I've gone on. But I'd never explicitly called myself an atheist until literally about the last month. I was like, I'm just going to start. If anyone else asks me, you know, sometimes people ask you in conversation. I'm just going to say that's what I am. And I, you know, I checked the dictionary definition and I was happy with it. <laughs> And said, "Yeah, I, I, I'm just not convinced of the existence of any god. Therefore, that is what I am." Okay. So I have, I don't know if it's an original stance that people can be spiritual without being uh, believing in God. Okay. Um, I think you've maybe seen a few posts that I wrote about that, and maybe that's what made you accept my invitation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go on. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's an interesting concept, that which I admit I hadn't really thought about in any, in any depth because I also wouldn't consider myself spiritual. So I, I'd be interested to sort of, for you, for you to be able to sort of more perhaps explicitly sort of say where, where you feel the divide is because yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm any of that. 
I don't I don't feel like I have but but, but you know perhaps I am and I just don't understand the distinction yes and I have a different definition of spiritual than the dictionary okay um so I've done actually a whole episode about this uh on the podcast this was this very first um okay, the very first episode is am I spiritual okay. um so people would have hopefully listened to it by now and um but what I want to say is for me being spiritual is someone who wants to leave the earth a better place that they found it and who has the desire to become a better person for me that's it that's spiritual See, that's interesting because that's not how I would interpret it at all. But um... I know, I know. I'm, but I suppose I'm bringing to the conversation a different definition yeah, no, of I've, spiritual. And rightly so. And, and you know, I have no problem with that. I think because surely everyone wants, is that not, is that not quite a human thing to want to do that? To want to, to want to improve things for others? Is that not quite a human desire? I, I don't want to throw around stats that I don't have, but I don't I, I definitely know that not everyone wants to leave the earth a better place. And I definitely know not everyone wants to become a better person or wants to do the work that it requires to become a better person. That that is a fact. So I feel yeah. What is what is a better person? Better than you were yesterday. Um reflecting on, on who you are, what you do the consequences of your action, having some sort of reflection on, you know, your impacts to people around you, um, sometimes, having I, some values. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I, yeah, values I, I absolutely ride with. I think sometimes this notion of better, I, I, I take issue with it perhaps in some contexts because I think we've, we've ended up in a situation a lot in, in a lot of different situations where we don't we don't just accept we're always trying to make things every everything's got to be better and sometimes it just is so for example i used to work in education as a, as a music lecturer and uh, and this is a slightly humorous example but i i, I feel it's perhaps relevant where um you know uh, schools and colleges etc get ofsted inspections and if you get grade one, that's called outstanding. That's the best you can be, is outstanding. But there was an initiative when I was in education about 12, 11 or 12 years ago in the college that I was working, where um, basically the college had had several outstanding inspections in a row. And other colleges in the region had also received outstanding inspections. And so the management of the college decided that the, what we now needed to do, and this was literally the theme for the year, was to become beyond outstanding. Which I said, of course, the English language doesn't allow for. Yeah. Because yeah. if everyone is outstanding, then outstanding has become the new average. And we're back to square one. And I was mm -hmm. just like shouted down. I was the annoying member of staff who just wouldn't jump on board, which is part of the reason I got out of education, because it was just nonsense. But that's another story. So the... This notion that we always have to make everything better every day, I sometimes think is not healthy for sometimes for people. I, like, I understand, like from the be from the beginning to the end of your life. Maybe. Yes, that's but what I, I mean. Yeah, I don't necessarily think we always have to be striving. Perhaps sometimes we can just accept that. Yeah. In fact, that's actually what I said. Why can't we just accept that some days we're great, some days we're average, and some days we're not so good? Because that's human. And then we'll just have another cup of tea and move on. But that doesn't seem to be what they wanted to do. <laughs> I, I I hear your point, and I think it's a great one. It's 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 a brilliant one, because I agree with you. Um, when we have that pressure, um, to be perfect, yes, um, or beyond outstanding, as you say, <laughs> it's actually so, quite toxic. Still so makes me laugh. Still makes yeah. absolutely. It still makes me it's laugh toxic. every time I hear that phrase. And, and it's funny because you've touched upon another of the values I have within my spiritual, I suppose, um, journey is that um, we are, we are, well, I know you won't agree with that, but that's fine. We, we agreed yeah, to disagree from the very start of this conversation. But Absolutely. I believe that people say we are human beings on a spiritual journey. I believe it's the complete opposite. We are spiritual beings that have come into a body and we have to learn to be human. 
And learning to be human is really hard because it's accepting our faults, accepting our limits. And um, and that's not something that is very popular as, as a message. So in a way, I, I, I sort of agree with you um, that it's important to to acknowledge the good and the bad and not try to fight it and just be realistic and pragmatic. And pragmatism is also another one of my values within uh, within this podcast and whatever I do. Mm. That's interesting. You believe you, you are spirits learning to be human. Yeah, because if we were just bodies, we wouldn't be alive. We know what a dead body is. So there's something in there. Call it personality, call it just the, the person there's, there's an energy in that body that at one point will leave your body we don't have to discuss what happens after death this is not the point of this podcast but it's almost for me it's like you have a lamp but then you switch the lamp on there's something in there that lights the lamp and and people get it the wrong way around they think that we have to learn to be spiritual and i think that's ridiculous personally it's an opinion yeah, that's an interesting opinion. I keep, absolutely, I've not, never quite thought of it like that. I remember when I was a kid. Um, I I, th I think it was mentioned in, in in church, which I spent a lot of time in until I was sort of fifteen or sixteen. Um, and I remember my dad using this expression sometimes. That he, I think my dad would agree with this. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. That he would believe that man, as in humanity, has a god-shaped hole. That's how that expression used to be used. And what, what he meant by that was that it's kind of an inherent, innate desire for a human to find something that fits, like a, like a jigsaw piece kind okay. of thing, to fit the hole that is in all of us, to explain everything you know that we're, we're sort of longing for and searching for. And some of us fill it with a, you know, a whole uh, X religion. Some of us fill it with Y religion. Some of us fill it with whatever spiritual beliefs that people might have. Um, and I think that is, I think of all of the things I heard about religion, I I think that's possibly one of the things I disagree with the least, if I can put it like that. That mm -hmm. that it kind of makes sense to me, in the way that I said earlier. Though I I quite like the idea. That, that I wish I had been convinced. I'm mm. just utterly unmoved. Um, and I kind mm. of would like to. So, so for example, you know, uh, I'm sure kind of thing that where many people will identify with. What my granddad, when I was a teenager, he died of cancer, and uh, when he was very, very poorly, uh, myself and my mom went to visit him, and my nana was who was looking after him in, in their home. He was upstairs in bed. She'd um, uh, like brought him some soup, and he couldn't really feed himself. He wasn't making any sense. He was, you know, very very poorly, and uh, she sort of sat him, up, got him sat up in bed, and put a tray over him, and uh, was 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 uh, going to feed him. And he was like, "Oh no, no!" Push, pushing pushing the the spoon away, and started muttering, and we and we couldn't figure out for a few seconds what was going on, and. Then we realised he was refusing to eat until he'd said grace, because that's what you do, and that's what he believed was right. He wanted to, you know, thank God for his food and 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 do what he did before every meal his entire life, even in that situation that it meant so so much to him, gave him comfort or whatever to do, to do that very simple act. And you know, as his family, that was extraordinarily emotional to watch, um, and even as a non-religious person. I found that very powerful and it's kind of stuck with me for 30 years having watched that happen um and you know I, I shall never forget that but even having watched that happen i still am unconvinced but i respect and kind of wish i had that conviction that certainty that that what he was doing was correct because you know this was the way he lived his life, so I this notion that this expression that I refer to of a god-shaped hole, it kind of makes sense to me. Like I think that's a and I and I, almost that is my way of coping with it. To sort of say it, it would be, wouldn't that be lovely?
I'm just not. So can I ask you a question about this? Yeah. Do you feel there's a there's a hole in you? That I don't, I you don't would think about Sorry, go on. But do you, do you think everybody has that that hole, whether we use God or something else to fill it in? And and personally, do you feel that you have that hole? Is it filled? And what is it filled with? I don't like walk around thinking, God, I feel so empty kind of thing. I, I don't sort of walk around feeling. It's not something that I think about every day. Hmm. It's, not, it's not something that's regularly on my mind at all. But if I'm asked about it, or if it comes up in conversation, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I have a hole. It's I just sort of think, well, a, a vague sort of yeah, that looks like it must be nice to sort of feel that conviction. So I mean, I I try not to be around religious settings as much as possible because I feel quite uncomfortable in them. Yeah. Like so, for example, I've had to go to a couple of family funerals in the last year and. I knew there would be religious events because 90% of my family is extremely religious. But I didn't want I didn't so I didn't want to be there because I didn't want to disrespect it. I didn't want mm. to be clearly not taking part. I, you know, I would quite happily if that's the correct expression, you've know, gone to the graveside, paid my respect and then not gone to a service afterwards. Um but you know, as far as I was concerned, family came first, so I went. And um, seeing the conviction around me of my family, the comfort that it was giving them, that as far as they were concerned, you know, in one case my, my great uncle, in the other case my nana, had you know gone to a better place. Just absolutely comfortable in that was. I mean, I think enviable is a too strong a word, but there was an element of mm. that must be nice, like because I'm just sat here really sad. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't feel like I have a hole in me. It's not. It doesn't bother me. I'm not emotional about it. Oh, I only mentioned it because you talked yeah. about it in very specific terms, and it kind yeah. of it kind of sparked a, a question in my mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, um, so. Is it okay to move on to the next question? Do you feel yeah, you yeah, yeah. I, find, I find it I find it interesting, but unconvicting. <laughs> yeah, no, and yeah. and it's it's funny because you you don't know this about me, but I feel very uncomfortable in religious settings and in churches mm -hmm. as well. Um, so you you in our interactions before you decided to come to this interview, you said you shy away from anything woo. So what do you mean by woo? Uh, well, it's a term that I didn't really know what it meant, and then I saw lots of other people using it, so I started putting it in sentences. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, but, but um, you know, I, I, when I, there seems to be, because I spend quite a lot of my time in sort of online you know, business groups or marketing groups or entrepreneurial groups or what, whatever you want to call them, there seems to be a, a, a significant percentage of the sort of, let's call it the coaching fraternity, um, that delves into all kinds of things which I've never heard of and don't know what they are and they talk about energy this and chakra the other and cleansing the other and all of these yep. I've got no idea what they're talking about um, and, I, and I sort of find it curious um, but I try I try not to get involved because I know that it just oh, I don't know what's going on it just it, it's it's like an alien language to me um, and if I do allow myself to sort of dip my toe in, I I tend to get the wrong idea. So, so for example, there was one a few weeks ago where someone had posted about um, what's your favorite conspiracy theory, and of course, my interpretation of what a conspiracy theory was uh, was you know something that is kind of ludicrous that anyone would believe such a thing. Um, and yeah. so people started giving their examples and someone posted a video and I and I watched it oh, I just thought press play on this what what is this let's I'm have a cup of coffee and amuse myself for two minutes and I started watching this video and I, and it was I was laughing at this I mean I, I won't be, give the specifics but it was to do with energy harvesting whatever that meant so I was watching this thing and I, and I was actually physically laughing and I without thinking commented 
this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. You know, thank you for sharing kind of thing. Because I thought, I thought that they were laughing at it too. But it turned out that this woman actually believed what this man was saying. Uh, so I now completely got the wrong end of the stick. I was like, oh, terribly sorry. I mean, of course, offense. I thought you were laughing at this. Um, yeah. So I, I, t I tried to stay away from whatever this woo stuff is, as this seems to be the collective term that people, slang term that people use for this stuff. Because I just don't know what they're talking about I don't understand it doesn't mean anything to me it doesn't convince me mm. and anytime I dip my toe I seem to get the wrong idea so I just very much an outside observer occasionally I like your answer and it, it kind of reminds me I don't know what they're called but for me conspiracy theory is people who think that the earth is flat and they're so convinced nobody can actually um, change their minds um, yes. they think they fabricated the the moon landing and that is uh, you know yeah Oh, well, there was all that as well, but then there was also these other kinds of woo-related things, which yeah. it, turned out, it turned out people actually believed. Mm. As you might have guessed, I'm passionate about promoting true spirituality in all areas of life, which is why I created the True Spirituality Summit in July 2023. Seven amazing speakers joined me to talk about true spirituality within relationships, creativity, health, money, self-love, parenting, and trauma and healing. The summit is free, so why don't you check it out on the Thinkific platform? I am the spiritual lawyer there, and the URL is https column two forward slash spiritual lawyer in one word, dot thinkific.com. Yeah, I find it um, really interesting. I, I really, I'm really interested in your point of view. I find it very refreshing as well, because I think in the spiritual community, people can go off in tangent and talk about things that are not actually that important to the very topic of spirituality. Yeah. Actually, spirituality doesn't need chakras. It doesn't need all this like trinkets at least it's my opinion mm -hmm. and we're we're fuzzing the issue by focusing on these things rather than on what is really important which is what are your values um you know how can you stay authentic to your values and sometimes it's not as easy as it seems uh, when we're faced with certain conflicts there's a real uh, need to reflect and and make a decision and and i guess for me that that's what spirituality is some people would call it philosophy i don't think philosophy covers it completely enough um so th thank you for sharing that that's okay um so sometimes i also feel that spirituality and we we touched upon it in in various strokes like i'm a painter so i go mm -hmm. i suppose and, and you would add notes and music to whatever we're discussing but um I suppose what I've been hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the lo a lot of people that you see that are religious have found in religion and in God, in the belief of God or the idea of God as something that has given meaning to their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And to things that otherwise would maybe feeling uh, uh, meaningless. So do you feel your life has meaning? Wow. That's a big one. <clears throat> I I struggle greatly with the notion that um that I am adding meaning um to like those around me or that I'm succeeding. I I struggle with, n greatly with the notion that I've done something good. I find it very difficult to acknowledge success, um, and I, it's something that I'm really trying to improve at. But it's been a essentially a lifelong battle. And I've got this sort of defense mechanism that any time I say anything that I've done is good or an achievement, I will immediately downplay it. The next words out of my mouth will be to, to knock it over or to decry it. Um, but in the last couple of years, um, with my work in my solar project, Arth, in particular, um, one of my best friends had said, no, you really want to leave a legacy behind. That was the word he used. And, um, you know, I'd been in Winterfell for a number of years and, you know, joined a band in that case that already existed and was a few records in. Um, but my life as a professional musician very much involves facilitating other people's musical dreams and other people's aspirations. 
and making the music that they want to happen and in the setting that they want it to happen, happen. That's what I do for a living. Now, whether that's me playing piano at someone's wedding or whether it's me teaching them how to play piano or whether it's me coaching a choir or whatever it is, I'm making other people's musical hobbies happen and musical passions happen. And I don't very often get to do mine. Um, so as a musician, that had really rankled with me for a long time that I'd never really got to do that very much. And so my mate was saying, you know, you're in your 40s kind of thing. You're not going to get any, not a young man anymore. Crack on. Um, so uh, encouraged me to leave a legacy. And so I decided I was going to make a, a record that was entirely to my own specifications with absolutely no compromise whatsoever, with, with as little involvement from other people as possible in terms of I would play as many instruments as I could and just really only get in anyone else that I just couldn't do. Um, with no one else's criteria in mind, purely in a selfish way. And if this was the most expensive set of MP3s I ever owned, so be it. Now, hire a studio, get someone to paint an album cover, the full works. I wanted a complete album with no one's opinion mattering other than mine. And really made it a full-on passion project. Um, and that was the first Arth album. And within two or three weeks of that being completed I had a five album record deal with one of my favourite record labels and at that moment literally I mean I, it's not overplaying it to state that was real lifetime dream stuff because all I'd ever wanted to do was you know in its slang terms be a famous rock star kind of thing that's all I ever wanted to do as a teenager be a rock star play tour the world, play play my music to other people and be famous for it. And I'm, I'm comfortable admitting that. That was what I wanted to do. And it never happened for, for one reason or another. Um, and now I've made a, an album of music to my specifications with no compromise and had been accepted in the metal community where piano is often not very popular. Yeah. Piano is not a very metal instrument. I know. I can't scream, I can't do aggressive vocals like many metal singers. So if I was going to make a metal album, it had to have lots of low baritone choral vocals on, because that's what I do. It had to have lots of harmonies, lots of organs, lots of pianos. You know, I orchestrate for a living, so there was cellos all over the place and stuff. And you know, I, I made an album which, to all intents and purposes, should really have been desperately uncool to a lot of metal fans. And got a record deal with one of my favourite record labels and started to get loads of people buying it and saying it was the best album of the year and things like that. So that was my legacy. And I viewed that album as my legacy the moment it was complete before anyone else heard it. And so that's why it meant a lot to me to then be accepted. And so in terms of my life having meaning, that is the first time, musically speaking, in my life that I'd really been completely proud of a project. Because every time I did anything else, I would always find the fault in it. I'm a real perfectionist when it comes to music, particularly professionally. Oh, that was a great show, Mark. Yeah, but, you know, it was all right. You know, there was this line in the second verse of such and such. And such. Like, real anorak about it. But with the Arth album, I'll back that. I think that's a great record. And I love it. And I really don't care if anyone else liked it, genuinely for the bottom of my heart. But the fact that they do... That's really fulfilling. So now that there's a second album and people are waiting to hear it, and I'm getting messages going, when's the new album now? You know, take my money now, kind of thing. It's really special, really special. And being, you know, performing it live with the band has been really special as well. Having to put together a band in the first place because there wasn't a band, I'd done 80% of the album. So does my life have meaning? I, musically speaking, which occasionally, clearly is as big a part of me as anything. This is now the first time sat in my mid-40s that I finally feel that I've absolutely put my sort of flag on the ground kind of thing and made my mark. And it's taken a long time to get there. And, you know, professionally people will talk about all the choirs that I've run and the thousands of gigs that I've done and all the people I've taught to play, play piano over the years. And it might mean something to them, and that's great. And, and I value that, and I respect that, and I'm grateful for that. But what actually means something to me really gets to my core, like really ticks all of the boxes, has taken me some mid-40s to get there. 
and I love it now. I don't want it to stop. And of course, that's all separate from your know, family stuff. And you know, finally, I got married. I guess a little bit older than a lot of people do, and had a child older than a lot of people do, and, and that's it's all kind of coming together. My daughter's only twenty months old now, and it's happened at the at the same time as this art project has been happening. And it's taken a long time to feel like I feel like I now I'm starting to put my like my mark of the ground kind of thing. Thank you for sharing that um, in such eloquent ways. I actually witnessed, um, I think we have been connected that long that I've witnessed when you, when, when was the album released, the first one? Feb February 2020. I'm pretty sure I knew you already online and I'd um, signed up for your no, Friday. My, my apologies, February 2022. It was made in 2020. Fe February yeah. 2022 it came out. But I remember you sharing about the process of doing it. And, you know, um, it's kind of takes us into the second part of the discussion I wanted to have with you, which is um, I, I love how these conversations can flow. Yeah. Which is about art creativity. And um, um, so I'm going to use the term you might. I would love for you to reflect back with your own words, because I know you don't probably don't use the word soul, although it's used in music. But um I believe that art should be taught as, um, you know, food for the soul rather than a performance, a performance or a competition or the yeah. way that it's taught in school is really, you have a feeling in that they're trying to groom talent out of those little kids rather than give them the gift of creativity for their own purposes, their own well-being, their own flourishment, their own, um, you know, um, well, I can't find another word for that, but you, you get the idea. Yeah. And I, I very much want to create a counterculture around art to give people permission. So for me, it's visual art. I, I actually made the conscious decision not to go to art school mm -hmm. because I didn't want art school to squeeze the fun out of my art. Uh, even though back then everybody told me I had I was talented enough, and I even had a friend recently who was looking at some of my paintings, well, all the paintings behind me are mine, but um, and who said he's an art critic and art um, curator, and he said, you know, honestly, some of your art could could go into galleries, but I'm I'm still deciding that it's for me at this point. Uh, it might change. I might change my mind at some point. Because for me, I wanted to keep art. And, and I, I had this really interesting thing with my sister, who's an artist who went to designer school, not art school, and who's, you know, exhibiting art and, and, and pursuing her career as an artist. And, and I observed what it did to her. So it was really, um, it, it, it was really, that, that's why I had that conscious choice not yeah. to. And I think she, she managed to keep her balance. But I'm in awe of what you've done with your album and how you have been entirely selfish and created something that was completely aligned with your values, that there was going to be no compromise. You use that word um, because so many artists feel that they have to produce art to an audience. Yeah. And that kills creativity, that kills originality, that kills the actual, almost the purpose of art, which is to really express yourself in the unique way that you can and i absolutely love that you explained how you know this is heavy metal but there's no screaming there's no this that the other and and you know you really sold me your album to be honest uh <laughs> and, and i'm gonna i'm gonna look for i don't know if i can listen to some of the pieces before yeah, i buy yeah, them absolutely. Um, all on, all i would love them. to put i would love to put the links in the show notes so please make sure you send them to me yeah yeah absolutely um, but this is what I admire and what I see in you is this authenticity and this commitment to yourself as an yeah. artist. It took it took a long time, and it's funny you should say about you know uh, making music to order can sort of kill creativity. You'll hear a lot of musicians talk about this in different genres that you've got a lifetime to make your debut album, and then you've got a short time to make the second one. Wow, and, I, I've and never heard you, that. Yeah, yeah because you know when you make the first album, it's how old you are. But then you know within a year or eighteen months or two years, it's like well, when's the next one coming out? People want the next one if it's gone well, you know. And writing the second one was a very different process to writing the first one, and I was determined that it wouldn't be in terms of, you know, I I wanted to approach it with with the same sort of purity of this is for me like. But it's almost impossible. 
as you're crafting a large body of music to not have passing thoughts of will they like this mm. it's really difficult to turn that off very very difficult and you don't want it to affect your decision making process because in many ways i guess like visual art when you're creating music all creating music is is a series of a million decisions does this not go there does that not go there what instrument should play that is it faster slower louder quieter higher lower like everything is a decision and when that gets to this far to the recording studio the recording process is very intense decision making process because you're not only deciding whether you like the music or is it right is it as good as it can be have we captured every note as cleanly as we could and then when you're mixing it can we still hear that instrument can there's every note and i find it really draining the mixing process in particular um but you know i love it it's re it's re i love it but it's extremely intense um and so yeah it's very difficult to to have this purity still when you know that someone is waiting to hear it because no one's waiting to hear your first one they don't know who you are but when you start making the second and third record like winterfell we're up to our eighth record that we're about to record and we have a fan base you know when's the new winterfell record out it's very difficult to like, make really pure decisions every time you're making a new song um but it's funny you talk, refer to art school. I've long had this rant about, you know, whether, in my case, music teaching should be, you know, what, what is the goal of music teaching? What is the goal of um, showing anyone how to play an instrument? And I've heard so many stories over the years where, and I hate to say that because there are, there's nothing wrong with classical music, obviously, because that would be a ridiculous notion to say, but so much of instrumental teaching has a background or a history in classical music. Because, of course, mm -hmm. once upon a time, there was only classical music. Um, what we now call classical music, it was just music then. Um, so much of in instrumental teaching is rooted in that. And classical music tends to have, or can often have, a very perfection or nothing mentality. We, You have to replicate Rachmaninoff's piano concerto exactly as it was intended. And you can put emotion into it, you can interpret the little elements of it. But m a very high percentage of classical music is prescribed. You can't just change the notes. You can make them slightly longer or shorter, maybe. You can make it slightly louder or quieter, maybe. You can't change the notes and the speed very much. It just is what it is. And so it's the quest for perfection that comes from that kind of environment mm. that I've heard so many stories of people who've had talent as young musicians who then just stopped playing and never touched it again because they felt if they made a mistake it was a disaster they played a wrong note the performance is over whereas of course in a sort of pop rock background popular music background if you play a wrong note just do it again and no one knows mm. was it a mistake if it's jazz just do it again and again <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and then just keep a straight face and see if anyone dares call you out on it. So it's, you know, when you're in popular music land, there's an element of improvisation and you can never, you don't have to play it the same way twice. When classical music, you have to try and replicate it as many times as you can consistently. I once had a, uh, spoke to a guy who'd been to uh, like a conservatoire, like a, a really sort of high level music education establishment when he was sort of 18 or 19. And then didn't touch the piano for 40 years because it just absolutely crushed his soul because it was perfection or nothing. And my passion in terms of the people I teach piano is I want those people, I want the, those people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even, who were told that they weren't musical or they had to play Beethoven or nothing or they had to play scales or nothing. You know, that it was work, it was a chore. And I was like, this is supposed to be fun. Every client I have, I say to them, the motivational and psychological aspect of learning an instrument, and I'm sure it's the same in any other art, is has got to be joy overall. If this doesn't put a smile on your face, then no hack or tip that I can show you on the piano serves any purpose other than as like a really mechanical, soulless act. It has to be fun. This isn't your profession in the majority of cases when I'm having this conversation. This is something you want to do for a living. This is something you want to do just because you want to have some fun. This is your time away from job and commitment and business and whatever. 
So it has to be fun. Because if it's not fun, an adult won't even sit at the keys. And if the adult goes, would rather take the bin out than sit down at the piano, then nothing else has any point. Mm. So we have to try and get away from, in arts education, I think, this notion that it's we have to be amazing at it. There's, there's joy in playing an instrument really badly. Yeah, for yourself, maybe not for others yeah, if they hear it. But yeah, it doesn't matter. It's for you first. I know, I know, no, I get it, yeah. I get it. I'm not trying to put a damp on what you yeah, said yeah. at all. Yeah, it's for you um, first. Oh, I love this so much. And what I've been hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in classical music, it's almost like it's about discipline and perfectionism, not so much creativity. Well, that's how we interpret creativity, of course. But there's 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 little room for interpretation. Yeah. And what's interesting is when you speak to class, I once had this debate live on Clubhouse actually with some very talented classical musicians who couldn't see this. As far as they were concerned, there was loads of ways you could interpret the same piano sonata. And I was like, really? Is there? But what what is there other than slightly changing the volume of a phrase, of a note? Slight you know, maybe speeding up slightly, maybe slowing down slightly. But you can't change the order of the notes. You can't add notes. You can't say, oh, perhaps he meant this. Mm. Wouldn't it have been better had Chopin added this? That's not how classical music works. That's how pop music works. And Unless you write your own piece of classical music, then you can do what you want. Well, but that's not what the education teaches you to do, is it? Well, there, don't get it wrong, you can take composition courses and songwriting courses, but interestingly, when I did my... So my degree was in popular music studies. And you had a choice of three things to major in. One was performance, one was composition, and one was technology. And I majored in performance. And then in the second year, you could choose which of the remaining two you were going to minor in. And I was like, well, there's no way I want to do extra composition lessons. So I did the technology. And my theory was that and it sounds ridiculous to say this because you can teach composition and you can teach songwriting because I've done both. But I think there's an element of your success or, not, or otherwise as a songwriter or a composition that is just you. It just is you. It's in you or it's not in you. You can learn to replicate stuff. You can learn to do things in the style of and you can learn the mechanics and the nuts and bolts. But, but sometimes... That little special element is, it's you, and I, I think that's very difficult to teach that element. I can't teach you to write a memorable hook of a song. I can teach you the kind of things that other songs have done. Do you do you understand the distinction? But I can't yes. necessarily make that. You know, we could even use the term spiritual. I guess I don't know, but that like missing magical element. It's either there or it's not. And some songwriters have an ability to write. Now, how many times could you say, I really like that person. I can remember that person's song and I can sing it along, even if I don't like it. So, for example, I don't like Ed Sheeran's music, right? But he's an unbelievable hook writer. I can sing you 10 Ed Sheeran songs without breaking sweat. And I've never listened to any of his records. <laughs> I've heard them on the radio. I've heard someone else. Do you know what? Or I've played them. But I've never sat down and listened to an Ed Sheeran album. That would be awful. Mm. <laughs> Mm. For me, but some people have that just innate ability to be able to to, to turn out memorable music, and, mm. so, and that's that's you know the, one of the unexplainable qualities of music, and it'd be the same in in any art. Well, I, I it's funny because for me, creativity um, stems from your personality, your entire life experience at that point. But there's also that element of intuition and allowing ideas to come to you and getting in the zone which is something that a lot of musicians writers i'm a writer as well um mm -hmm. as as a visual artist so i've kind of deconstructed it by because i trained as a clinical hypnotherapist so i know what tra what trance looks like how to, so how do you get into that creative mode just out of curiosity to, um well yeah I, I the more i talk to people about this the more i realize i do it in a slightly unusual way so the first art album was written entirely from improvisation and what I mean by that is I would press record on the voice notes of my phone, sit down at the piano without any preparation whatsoever, 
and having already pressed record, start playing and just capture whatever came out. And my notion behind that, excuse me, was that I'd always believed that the first thing you played was always going to be the best. The first thing you came up with. Or it was going to have a chance of being best. Because you weren't like over-examining it and th thinking about it too much. It was just like, this is where my hands are falling on the piano. And yeah. of course, some of the stuff you came out with was better than others. But I ended up with like a folder of like 50-odd of these improvisations. And then I played like a game of Tetris, like a jigsaw, by listening back through them and going, well, I quite like that 10 seconds over here. And this 30 seconds that was recorded six months earlier actually could have fitted with that. All right, let's put that together right now. There's the start of a song. And I would just start taking little fragments of little bits of improvisations and start welding them together and then developing them and working on them. But they were the seeds. They were the starting points. And um, that's how the entire album was written. I eventually, I eventually had one song that was called Arth 6 slash 29. And it's because it had, didn't have any lyrics at that point. And it, it was, you know, the sixth improvisation and the 29th improvisation that had been recorded months apart, welded together. Um, so that's how I wrote the first one, trying to capture, like, the absolute essence of spark of the moment without thinking about it. Because I know that I've got such a musical theory brain if I allow myself, I will really overanalyze things and go, what chord should come next? Or what chord, what really fits there like, if we play by the rules kind of thing? Someone said to me when I was young, you need to know the musical rules before you know how to break them. And that's why I always try and encourage people to have a little bit of music theory knowledge because I think it really speeds up knowing how to break them rather than yeah. just being complete guesswork. But of course, loads of musicians, millions of musicians have written millions of great songs without knowing anything about music theory. But that's just how my brain works. Um, but then the second album, I wrote in a completely different way. I did, and without intent, without mm. intent, I reworked and reworked and reworked ideas, and I came back to them. I had like five or six songs that were sort of sketches, and I would do it almost like on a circuit. I, I want to have another go at that one. I want to have another go at that one. I want to have another go at that one. And, and songs just sort of gradually, layer by layer, attempt after attempt, would gradually sort of crystallize. So the two albums, without intending it, have come together very, very differently. And I love them both. Which it's really interesting. To, without In a very short period of time, my working method completely changed. Hmm. I find that really interesting because I also, as, as I said, I'm a writer and I, I help people write books. Mm -hmm. And um, what you say about the improv um, is what a first draft is of a book. If you, but some people like to completely plan it in the finest detail, and then you know there's the, the there's the plodders and the pantsers. <laughs> there's the two expressions. Is that some people completely curate their book before they write it, whereas other people just go with it and 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 follow whatever is happening. So I'm glad that you actually shared your experience of both in a way, because that. Yeah. I don't know if I, I, I saw it right, but that's what I see in what you've just said to me. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is when I was doing my music, I did a piano teaching diploma a lot of years ago. And as part of that examination process, you had to write a sort of medium-sized essay on, on your choice of topics. And one of the topics, the one I chose, was discussing the importance of improvisation in, in music tuition. You know, discuss how how useful you think it is, or what are the pros and cons, should, should people be encouraged to improvise well? Um, my argument that I made, perhaps I was just trying to be facetious slightly, but I, I believe it. My argument that I made was, I don't think there's any such thing as improvisation, which having just told you the previous story, it might sound like nonsense. But what I meant was that if you ask someone what the word improvising means, they tend to use the expression making it up as you go along. That's a sort of colloquial term that many people will sort of use. And that suggests that you're creating something new every time because you're making it up, like you're, like you're bringing it from the ether. It doesn't exist, and now you've created it. But my argument was, and I, I think it's quite interesting, I think you can argue this both ways, but my argument in that case was that there are only 12 notes in music. And I think we can probably say that every permutation of those 12 notes has, has happened at some point in music history. Probably some of them, many times. In fact, there's no probably about it. And so my, when I, if I'm teaching someone how to improvise and to, 
to create. I always describe it as like an artist's palette. Mm. It's about having things at your disposal and knowing when and where it is appropriate to use it. I'll have a little bit of that flavor here, a little bit of that color there. This combination of notes will work well here. And what in fact you're doing is you're not making it up as you're going along. You're using your expertise and experience to recall things at a very fast um, pace. So ideas that you have played before, ideas you've heard someone else play before, taking an element of someone else's song but then doing X to it because you think it's appropriate. And that's me. to me what's happening when you're improvising. You're just making extremely fast decisions and extremely fast recalls of combinations of notes that you know work followed by combinations of notes you're going to take a chance might work because of some experience that you've had. And this idea, like in an art, I guess, like taking a bit more extra of that colour, mixing it with a bit of extra of that colour to get a colour that you think might be right kind of thing. It's experience that's driving that. You're not necessarily creating something completely that has never been done before. You might be putting mm. your own twist. Do you understand the sort of distinction? I'm no, making? absolutely. I, I think this, it makes sense to me this, as an artist. This, yeah, discussion of creation and improvisation, and, and where that's coming from is, is is really interesting. And I suppose I want to take it back as we are about to finish this interview and wrap it up to the joy. If you find joy in doing it, do it. And if you don't, you don't. Um, exactly. Because I can imagine that some people, if they were put on the recorder, like you have to do something, would feel extreme anxiety and find the process, um, you know, harrowing actually. So um, I think that's that's what I want to encourage our listeners. Because as as I mentioned to you, I think before we started recording, I do want to have a proper episode about art and how it can contribute to well-being um, and to. Um, even happiness, um, but we need to deconstruct the way art and music and writing. For me, it's all art, but that's because of the French way of using the word art. Uh, I think sure. in English, you separate music from art. I'm not sure. completely sure just yet how, why it's happened. Um, I know you have more words uh, in your language as well, so maybe that's how it happened. Sure. Um, but I really want people to embrace art music writing as part of their spiritual path their spiritual journey absolutely. or or even just the well-being journey yeah absolutely i i think we've long forgotten how useful music in my circumstance can be because we we engage so passively with it these days you know once upon a time it, it was a it was a determined act for a family to gather around a piano and sing or for someone to purchase a piece of sheet music so that they could play it or for someone to pick a vinyl off a shelf and do nothing else other than sit and listen to the record and look at the lyrics and look at the artwork. But now, yes. pl playlists on in the background whilst we do 20 other things and don't really pay any attention to it. And I think it's a bit the same with storytelling. When there was only storytelling around the campfire, and I know this sure. is a bit of a cliche, people yeah. had to engage with it. People, There had to be that um, collective engagement into the, the, the telling of the stories, whereas today we just read a book that someone's written and don't even think that we have that capacity to do the storytelling. Or listen whereas, to it whilst we do something else. Yeah, yeah. It's been such a delightful conversation, Mark. Thank I'm you. so glad to have had you on the show. I think you really add to the discussion and the theme of um, atheism, spirituality, creativity, well-being, all that. I just want to drop in for our audience that doesn't know that you're also a mental health first aider, uh, which I think is something that has really made you stood out uh, for me uh in the online world and i'm sorry almost that we can't explore that aspect but i don't want the episode to be too much over an hour sure. maybe you'll come back at some point who knows um so where can people find you and obviously all the links will be in the show notes but uh where where is it the easiest to find you mark if people wanted oh. to um work with you two ways of remembering me either you remember my name in which case you go to markdeeksmusic.com uh, or you just remember how the, it was that piano guy. Okay. And, and Wonderful. So that piano guy club. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Um, and we'll talk to you next week again. Thank you. Bye for now.
Thank you for listening to the episode of the True Spirituality with Ange podcast. I want you, before you go, if I could ask you to be kind enough to rate the podcast and write a review so that more people get to know about the podcast. Please also, if possible, share the episodes with people you think might be interested in listening to them, especially if you've liked them a lot. And um, understand that I'm also available to come and do um, expert talks um, to your communities, your memberships on either intuition in business, spirituality in business, mindset, um, energy, prosperity and intuition. Thank you so much for listening.